This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. It is August, Wednesday the 28th, and this is Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today. I am with Mark Galley, who is freshly back from Europe as of 12 hours ago. Something like that, uh-huh. 15 hours ago. Welcome back, Mark. Welcome back to you from the hospital 24 hours ago. I was not in the hospital 24 hours ago. I was recovering on my couch. Yes, you got hit by a car over the weekend. So there you go, friends. That'll teach her to be out and about in town when she should be just sitting at home. Exactly. Nothing ever bad happens to people when they sit at home, right? (laughs) Right. Who is joining us today? Joining us today is Daniel Hummel. He is the program curator for academic communities at Upper House, a Christian study center located at the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A historian of U.S. religion and foreign relations, Daniel is the author of Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israeli Relations, and has written for The Washington Post, Jerusalem Post, and Eon Magazine. Now, today's topic is premillennialism, and we're going to give listeners a few minutes to figure out why Daniel would be the perfect guest for this episode. Actually, one uh, welcome, Daniel. I just had one one question I'd like you to clarify. I know what they are, but I think our listeners should, should know. What is a study center, a Christian study center at a secular university like the University of Wisconsin-Madison? Thanks for uh, having me on, Mark and Morgan. A Christian study center is an institution that's explicitly Christian that usually is located around campus of a major uh, university. And what we do is we host uh, programming events that are geared toward Christian students and Christian faculty. We really try to see ourselves as coming alongside the university and encouraging the university in all the good research and thinking that's being done, but also providing a space for explicitly Christian thought. I've often compared it to a Hillel for Christians. Yeah, I'm very familiar with them. I, I helped uh, donate to uh, one young man's... Wait, the Christian centers or the Hillel's? No, the Christian centers. Okay. For just this reason. I just think it's a great way to integrate Christian faith with the intellectual life as it's presented at these schools. So I think that's a wonderful ministry. Great to have you here, Daniel. We are looking forward to it. I'm going to get into our sense of why we are talking about this particular issue in the end times. I know that the end times has obviously been in the news in our extremely fast-paced news cycle because last week (laughs) the president seemed to make some references echoing rhetoric from the end times. But there's actually another reason in addition to our president why we're going to talk about it, which is that the Evangelical Free Church of America last week changed its position on end times theology. This summer, I'm not sure if it was actually last week, to be honest, the denomination voted to drop the word premillennial from its statement of faith. For those of you who haven't nerded out in the book of Revelations recently, premillennialism is the belief that Jesus will return to earth to reign as king for 1,000 years. So what prompted the change then? I'm going to read you some stuff from the Evangelical Free Church of America's statement. They said, we say that we major on the majors and minor on the minors. And the denomination also noted that it did not take a stance on the Reformed versus Arminian view of conversion 
or the age of the earth or infant versus adult baptism or whether the gifts of the spirit are still going or not. The statement continued, quote, we believe there is a significant inconsistency in continuing to include premillennialism as a required theological position when it is clear that the nature of the millennium is one of those doctrines over which theologians equally knowledgeable, equally committed to the Bible and equally evangelical have disagreed through the history of the church. So this week on Quick to Listen, we wanted to discuss how premillennialism became a conviction that rose to the level of appearing on the EV Free Statement of Faith and what their rejection, I guess, of it from their statement of faith means. What is the significance of it? Mark, I have heard you say multiple times throughout the office that you are somewhat of an expert on all of this type of stuff. No, no, no. Not expert. Just well-read in it. Tell me your gut reaction to this news. Since a young man, I've seen many evangelical organizations and churches drop the premillennial requirement in their statement of faith to something that's more amillennial, or that is to say, does not take a stand on the exact order of end times events. It did surprise me that the Evangelical Free Church still held this view. And well, that, only the one in America, too. The one in Canada, I guess. Oh, okay. Still held this view and required its pastors and leaders to uh, subscribe to it. I do understand that that's, it's of less interest to millennials, and, and maybe maybe they were having difficulty getting young younger Evangelical Free leaders to sign off on it. I don't know what so the— So millennials killed pre-millennials? <laughs> there you <laughs> At any rate, I thought it was an interesting development, somewhat of a surprise that the still incoming, but it did bring to mind the history of millennial thought in both Christian history going back to day one to recent events, to evangelical-Israeli relations. It's just, it's a topic that touches a lot of different things. I will just say that some things that are interesting about my job here at Christianity Today is that I learn a lot about denominations, including the one that I grew up in and really knew nothing about. I do not ever remember during the 10 years, I think I was 10 years, at an EV free church, this particular doctrine. Never came up. Coming up or not coming up. I also don't remember anything notable about them not taking stances on all this type of stuff. The way it would come up would be pretty casual. It'd be that Jesus Christ, the basic worldview of premillennialism is the world is is getting darker and darker and that it will require Christ's return for it to turn around. And the specific view of premillennialism is that he will come and reign for a thousand years before finishing things up after that. So you'd probably hear it more in generic. Isn't it great that Christ is coming again to save us from our sins and from the evil of the world. Gotcha. You wouldn't hear it proclaimed that this is a doctrine you have to believe as an evangelical free church. It was assumed. It was in the air. Fair enough. Well, anyway, so my gut reaction is like, huh, learn something new every day about something that you were a part of for 10 years. Well, Daniel, we are glad that you are here to tell us even more about this particular topic. And I know Mark briefly defined what premillennialism is, but it would be great if you could walk us through this a little in a little bit more detail and then also kind of give us some of the other competing theological understandings. And yeah, Mark had the basic part of premillennialism down. If you divide that into two, the pre part and millennialism part. Millennialism is the belief that there will be a millennium. Usually people point to Revelation 20 as the the sort of millennium chapter, that there will be this period where Jesus will be personally reigning for a thousand years. And the pre-part is saying that Jesus will come and personally sort of be the king and reign for that millennium. The two sort of dominant opposing views are post-millennialism, which is the belief that essentially the church will inaugurate a millennium, and then Jesus will personally return at the end of those thousand years. And then amillennialism, which is a rejection of a literal 1,000-year 
reign. And these three different views have waxed and waned in popularity and in where the scholars of every generation sort of land. They're all quite old. Uh, you can find what we'd call today pre, post, or amillennial uh, traditions going back to the church fathers. But in more recent evangelical history, postmillennialism dominated in the early parts of American history and colonial history. People like Jonathan Edwards saw revivals as inaugurating the millennium as bringing in this deeply Christian era that would last for a thousand years and then sort of conclude with Jesus personally returning. But historians often see the shift happening in the mid-19th century with the Civil War. A more pessimistic view of the future is coming into a lot of Americans' minds. And there's also new theological influences that are making premillennialism much more popular. Premillennialism becomes sort of the main tradition and the the air that a lot of evangelicals breathe throughout the 20th century. But there's also a very consistent amillennial tradition, often in reform circles, that is not usually at the leadership of the evangelical movement, but is always in the mix as well. My question, though, is after reading the book of Revelation several times during my life, why is not everyone amillennial? Like, is there some sort of thing that really seems to suggest one or the other. I mean, I guess I just feel like there's so much in Revelation that is confusing to understand, and it makes me just wonder why people feel like they end up falling into one camp or another. So this this part of theology is often is is called eschatology or sort of the study of last things. And one thing to always remember about eschatology is that it's never on its own. People aren't coming to these positions without thinking about the rest of their views of the Bible, of how to read the Bible, of how they see the ministry of Jesus and history and, and what's happening in the future. And so in particular, if you think about premillennialism, it became very popular among conservative evangelicals in the fundamentalist movement. It was very popular. And part of the reason that that community really wanted to have a literal 1,000-year reign with a personal Jesus at the head of it was because they— saw themselves as reading the Bible very literally. If you take Revelation 20 and you sort of read that there will be a literal 1,000-year reign, then it becomes sort of a marker of your theological fidelity overall. If you're reading this literally, if you're reading it analogically or sort of not literally. So that's one way that the eschatology view gets conscripted into much bigger movements is because you have to read not just Revelation, but there's passages in Daniel and some of the, the Hebrew prophets have parts of the, their prophecies that are seen to be sort of pointing to this end state, this, this end times. And they all get conscripted into debates about how to read the Bible and what is the nature of the church and the kingdom of God as well. One, one uh, visceral part of this conversation that certainly plays at a at the local church level is that premillennialism is a reaction to postmillennialism as it was expressed in the social gospel movement that is to say if we just really put our shoulder to the to the wheel we can make the society better and better and better and we will bring in the millennium and then Jesus will come conservatives tended to react react against that because of its view of human nature which was essentially positive and felt like the gospel hinged on the need for Jesus Christ to save us from our sins and to save the world and therefore they were very much committed to a premillennial view that Christ had to come and get things right first 
before they got right. So I remember early on in the 50s and 60s, anyone who who said anything to the effect of, well, let's just go out there and work for the kingdom and we can make a, a beachhead for the kingdom in this area, or we can advance the gospel, or we can language that suggests progress— there is that suspicion that we're now talking about post-millennialism and essentially works righteousness. Like you're saying, it falls into all these other categories as well. That's part of what's going on here as well. Premillennialists have often been leaders in, in global missions as well, because they see that as sort of the primary task of the church. You know, one of the most famous premillennialists was Dwight Moody, who, you know, was this major revivalist figure. And he often talked about sort of his role was to throw out life rafts to save people from a sinking ship, and that's the earth. And so he saw every revival he was doing was sort of saving as many souls as he could before Jesus came back. And so there's a very, as you said, visceral felt need coming out of premillennialism that missions is, we need to do as much missions, reach as many people as we can as quickly as possible before time runs out. I'm glad that we're looking at this through an American history lens, which I find really important, especially for how contextualized this conversation can be. But, you know, you'd mentioned earlier, Daniel, that these beliefs are not necessarily anything new and you can go back to the early church. So prior to the Reformation, then what was the church's position on this stuff? The Catholic Church is largely amillennial. They see the church as the figurative millennium or or the kingdom. Th- this debate over the millennium really comes out of the Reformation in a lot of ways. I mean, there are debates happening all through the Middle Ages and before, but this really becomes a decisive issue, major issue. Once you get the Bible in a lot of different people's hands and a lot of different languages, and people are bringing their own their own readings of the Bible to the front and to the fore, and actually creating denominations and and creating movements based on on these readings. And so you get a lot of uh, millennialist type sects who see the end near or who see a certain way that the end is supposed to come coming out of the Reformation. I'm not surprised. The Reformation seemed to really just open the door to tons of opinions. Exactly. <laughs> or theological convictions. I think in the broadest sweep, and Daniel, I'd be happy for you to correct me on this. In the broadest sweep, the earliest church was premillennial, more or less. I mean, there were differences of opinion, but I think my understanding is premillennialism was more dominant until Augustine came along and basically convinced everyone that amillennialism was really a better way to think about things. Would that be a fair statement? I think so. I think certainly the, the early church fathers, uh, Tertullian and, and others, really were anticipating something happening in their lifetimes or, you know, maybe not even like the next day. And that, um, that belief faded. And Augustine was one of the major people to reinterpret the millennium and, and the church as sort of the, the church is sort of this permanent kingdom that, that Christians needed to invest in, as opposed to sort of anticipating a sudden cataclysmic event that would inaugurate the millennium. I think we'd be remiss in not mentioning or discussing how the Left Behind series has shaped Christian imagination and thought around this particular conviction. Can you speak about that too, Daniel? Even before Left Behind, sort of the best-selling nonfiction book of the 1970s was Hal Lindsey's Late Great Planet Earth, which was a nonfiction version of essentially the same theology that Left Behind fictionalizes or novelizes. And both Hal Lindsey's work and the Left Behind novels are part of a certain type of premillennialism called dispensational premillennialism, which is, I think, seven syllables and just a huge mouthful to say a number of times in a scholarly paper. It has as many syllables as the ages of the church that they think 
Yeah. That's right. Maybe that was the intent there. You have seven ages with seven children. <laughs> um, and this particular type of premillennialism has distinctive features like the teaching that there will be a sudden rapture any moment. All of the true believers will suddenly just leave the earth and their clothes will even be left where they were standing or sitting. There's a real big emphasis on a personal antichrist coming to power and sort of making everyone take the mark of the beast. That's what you see in the Left Behind novels. And that's the type of theology that is really popular on the on the sort of popular level among a lot of American evangelicals. I mean, the Left Behind novels were read by people outside of the evangelical world, but they've sold upwards of 80 million copies of all the, the novels combined. How Lindsay's Lake Great Planet Earth has sold more than 35 million copies. And so these are some of the most successful cultural products that Americans you know, have created in the last 50 years. And they really popularize a lot of aspects of uh, premillennial theology to the masses, to Americans in all walks of life. Really shape, I think, a lot of our, our even conversation about the millennium. I think a lot of Christians assume if you are at all interested in the millennium or, or in the end that you have this particular type of premillennialism on your mind. Daniel, maybe you could help me here because there have been, you know, many articles written about the influence of the Left Behind series and how it's shaped our perceptions. Uh, is there any research that indicates that it's, it, it actually has done that? The reason why I ask is I remember reading the first one or two and I thought the dispensational framing was interesting, but it didn't necessarily convince me to become a dispensationalist. I just thought it made it for an interesting plot structure. And I'm just wondering how many Americans read it in that light or how many actually read it and became subtly influenced by it. All right, it. I'm going to cut off Daniel really quickly to say that I definitely read those books uh -huh. growing up, and that's what I thought all Christians believed. Okay. All right. Bro, 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 Fair I mean, enough. But obviously I was like younger when I was reading them, yeah, right? Yeah. But like. Uh -huh. In my Evie Free Church, <laughs> right, exactly. borrowing them from the church library. Right. That is what I thought was normal. The Christian view. Yes. Yeah, okay. All right. Sorry. Go ahead, Daniel. No, that, that's a, that's sort of what I was going to say, too, is, I mean, I grew up as well. I didn't grow up in an Evie Free Church, but I grew up in a church that I actually grew up in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where Jerry Jenkins, one of the co-authors of the Left Behind novels, also was. And yeah, I read these, these novels as a kid as well and just assumed that this was the way Christians thought about the end times. And I think that's one of the, one of the bigger influences of the Left Behind novels is to, to make this assumption or, or posit this assumption in the wider culture that this is the capital T, the Christian view on the end times. You know, there's also a lot of people within the premillennial world who did not like Left Behind because they took novelistic license with a lot of the theology to make. No kidding. <laughs> and actually some of the more, you know, diehard dispensationalist theologians did not like those turns. So I think the, the sort of legacy is mixed. I don't think a ton of people suddenly became dispensationalists after reading them. I don't think most Christians really define themselves based on how they view the end of the world. But there was a lot of sort of just pervasive sense that this is not only something that theologians believe, but that a lot of evangelical Christians believe as well. So I'm curious then, th this set of beliefs seems to also be invoked in conversations about views of Israel, which I know this is something that you're an expert on as well. And I'm wondering if you can kind of connect the dots from end times beliefs to, you know, Christian influence on American foreign policy and support for Israel. And this is where that that more laborious term, dispensational premillennialism, comes in. And one of the key teachings in dispensational premillennialism is that the Jewish people and the church are two separate 
covenanted communities with God, and that contrary to the traditional view that sees the church sort of taking the place of Israel after Jesus, dispensationalists see uh, that there is still a plan in place for the Jewish people. This is partly how they read the the Old Testament and particularly the, the prophecy books. But this belief leads dispensationalists in particular to look with fascination on the Zionist movement back in the 19th century and early 20th century. And then when the state of Israel was created in 1948, dispensationalists saw that as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and like a literal fulfillment of reading the prophecies literally where, you know, Jeremiah says the people will be regathered in, in their land. And so since the 1940s, evangelicals who believe in this particular type of premillennialism have been very vocal about supporting Israel and then organizing to that effect in the in the 60s and 70s and particularly after the 1967 war which saw Israel capture a lot of the lands that have biblical re- resonance for Christians uh, reading their bible they saw that as another fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And many of these premillennialists are looking for anticipation for what they think is the next sort of literal fulfillment, which will be building a rebuilding a, a temple on the Temple Mount. And this has led to these evangelicals just being very engaged on this issue. And in more recent years, creating organizations like uh, Christians United for Israel, which now has 7 million members that wow. lobbies wow. the U.S. government. And you know, is really in line with the sort of Israeli governments on trying to protect Israeli interests. So this is interesting that you bring that all up, because when Mark and I were chatting before the podcast, he actually mentioned that some denominations, or I guess more and more denominations, I don't know what the best way to characterize it is, Mark, are actually kind of dropping this conviction from their statement of faith. Have been over the last three or four decades, I would say. Yeah. Are there like two different trends happening at the same time, I guess? I definitely think so. I think in the world of pop culture and even political activism, the ideas around premillennial ideas are very popular and animate a lot of people. In the world of seminary training, and theology, particularly dispensational premillennialism, has really uh, lost a lot of its luster and respectability. And premillennialism more generally has become much more contested. If, if you go back 50 years to the 1960s or 1950s, there's just a lot of premillennialists teaching in the major seminaries that evangelicals go to. And a lot of the most popular pulpits are premillennialist. And now today it's, it's much more diverse there are still some important premillennialist uh, perspectives out there, but the landscape is much different, and there's a lot more room for amillennial views in particular. There's not many postmillennialists around. There's a few on the fringes, but it's really become a much more diverse theological landscape, even if the popular side is still really dominated by these premillennial themes. Would you attribute that to different Christian leaders, a book that came out, larger events happening in history? What What is responsible, I guess, for this more recent shift? Yeah, some of it's just the diversification of the education landscape where, where pastors go to seminary. So there are still some pretty strong premillennial seminaries. Dallas Theological Seminary is one of them. Talbot Theological Seminary in Southern California is another one. Since the 19, well, since the 1940s, there have been a lot of new seminaries that don't have that view. A lot of them are, are pretty open to different types of views. Uh, one of the biggest ones is Fuller uh, Theological Seminary, Gordon-Conwell the 
Theological Seminary, even the EFCA's, E.B. Free's own seminary for Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, they've grown a lot more diverse in their views as well. And so that's one of the stories is just the multiplication of different seminaries that people can go to in the evangelical world and what type of training they get. I'd also say a lot of the best scholarship in the last 30 or 40 years has really been crossbreeding between premillennial and amillennial scholars, scholars of the New Testament or systematic theologians. And that scholarship has really created a much more uh, an atmosphere of sharing and learning from each other, as opposed to going back 50 or 60 years. A lot of theologians really define themselves based on which view of the millennium they held. I can speak to that anecdotally. I went to Fuller starting in 1974. This suggests a couple things, this uh, this anecdote. I went into class after class in which uh, the professor would make some point, whether it was a New Testament class or a theology class. And then by way of contrast, the professor would say, this is, di- this is different than what dispensationalists think. You could tell that the ethos of Fuller was a reaction to dispensationalism. So that that was one thing. The other thing was, I had no idea what they were talking about. That is to say, I was raised in a Christian evangelical culture in which this was not a conversation. So that when I got there and I heard Fuller reacting against dispensationalism, I said, what's dispensationalism? Never heard of it. So it suggested a shift, at least on the West Coast, had already taken place toward a more millennial view, on, on, at least certainly on a ground level. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. We've been talking a lot about the American church, but I would love to get a sense of, Daniel, where you think the global church is in on this conversation. And obviously that's like a, I don't want to overgeneralize, but are you familiar with how different parts of the world or different countries, this debate, I guess, is playing out there? It's really hard to even get a grip. I mean, there's so many different languages where these debates are happening and obviously so many just different areas where the church is growing rapidly. I'd say the, you know, the concern level on on this issue varies a lot. And a lot of it might even depend on, if we think about the legacy of, of North American and European missions, a lot of times, whatever the missionaries that traveled to other parts of the world brought with them as their concerns, filtered their way into the churches that they planted and then, and then grew. And so even now you can see some of those legacies. I'll say on the issue of sort of premillennialism in Israel, it's a growing sort of view among particularly Pentecostal-leaning Christians in the Global South, 
there's a significant movement to see to, to be premillennial and to see the nation of Israel as sort of a key component to what's going to happen in the future. But you know that's one part of the the global church view. There's certainly a lot of amillennial discussion uh, among theologians in different parts of the globe, particularly as they interact with with scholars from with English writing scholars and scholars from the West. I'd say overall, though, that this isn't one of the most, if you think every era might have like its defining issue uh, for the church, right now this is not that issue. It was this, this was the issue, uh, at least for the North American and European churches in earlier generations. But that is, it's not sort of the issue that's dividing people or creating new movements, as far as I can tell, around the globe. Doesn't seem to be that way. I do understand. I was talking to some folks who new people who were at this particular meeting that the Evangelical Free Church of America had where they discussed these particular issues. And they did say that it was like one of the best attended ever, (laughs) which I thought was interesting as far as popularity goes. But it did not seem obviously like this was causing the church to be at risk of a split or anything the way that we've seen other issues kind of threaten the church's unity on that. Daniel, I don't know if you do see any type of, I don't know, fallout is the right word, but consequence resulting from this particular decision? I would expect not much. The decision was pretty lopsided. I think it was 79% of the EFCA gathering voted to get rid of, well, they didn't actually just get rid of premillennial, replace that word with glorious. So it's the bodily and glorious return of Jesus, I think. And there's a whole sort of argument why they wanted to replace premillennial with, with glorious. Um, Could you get into that a little bit? Yeah. So the, the movement to remove premillennial was seen as getting rid of position that not everyone held or needed to hold to be considered Christian and right standing. And the argument was to replace the word premillennial with glorious because this is a, something we see in the biblical text that Christ's uh, return will be a glorious appearance, and that this would be more in line with what the Bible says. I think it's also just a convenient way to say we're not just taking something away, we're actually reforming the language to be a sort of, you know, more perfect, to be closer to, to the biblical intent. So I think it was it was in part sort of a legitimate decision to try to get closer to the biblical text. I also think it was a good strategic decision to not just take something out. Are there any prominent denominations that still have pre-millennialism in their statement of faith? You know, not to my knowledge. And I mean, the EFCA is a significant denomination. It's not that big, though. It's about there's about 200,000 weekly attendees to to evangelical free churches around the country. This issue is much more live in seminaries, as you might imagine. In the EV Free Church, this issue came up about 10 years ago in 2008. It was actually sort of aired at the public gathering, and it was decided that it was not the right time to get rid of this language for fears that there would be some people that would some churches that would leave the denomination. And my sense of this is that um, this issue w- is live for maybe smaller churches with older populations in them that remember when this was a much more relevant part of the identity of being in an evangelical free church, of being premillennial. But that churches that are larger or younger in demographics, which is the majority of EV free churches just don't see any relevance to we're really spending any time on this issue in terms of 
sort of trying to have a formal debate between which type of millennialism uh, are you. I think there's definitely interest in talking about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom that we have now will relate to the kingdom when Jesus comes back. I think that's a very common thing that a lot of sermons are built around, a lot of discussion is built around. But actually hashing out these debates, the broader implication that you don't have the proper reading of the Bible unless you're a premillennialist, that type of argument is of a much older generation. And so I think that 21 percent that continue to vote against changing the statement of faith is coming from largely from churches where that is still seen as a legitimate argument. Thank you for explaining all of that to us. For those of our listeners who have strong feelings about this, either way, as always, I encourage you to send us an email. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com or you can tweet at us at CT Podcasts. We truly appreciate all the feedback. We read all your feedback last week too from last week's Babylon B episode and we're grateful that you guys shared that with us as well. So I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who supports the ministry that we do here at Christianity Today. As we know, that often means that that is Mark serving as an ambassador for CT in different places, sometimes around the world. I mentioned at the top of the show that Mark just got back from Europe, specifically Poland. I don't know if you want to share a little bit about what took you over there. It was a, an ecumenical Holocaust tour sponsored by both the Jewish Federation in Chicago and the Episcopal Diocese of Chicago. So it was mostly main mainliners. There was a couple Catholics, maybe one Catholic and a couple evangelicals, but it was mostly more broadly an ecumenical group. It was to learn about the Holocaust. It was to do a couple of things. I shouldn't say it was just a negative view. It was there to help us understand the beauty and the intellectual depth of Jewish cult- culture before the Holocaust, how rich it was and how much has been lost. So it was not only a just a tragedy of human life being lost, it was also a culture and a language, Yiddish, for example, being lost. That was very, very interesting to be upon. I will be writing a couple articles related to my experiences there and my thoughts that prompted that. I thought one illustration or difference between some Christians in the world today is when they see an experience like when they read, participate in learning about that that time, they naturally and rightfully say, is there something like that in our own time that we should be more sensitive to and we should be standing up for? And it was interesting, like most of the participants in the group, they kept on making a connection between Hitler's treatment of the Jews and the U.S. treatment of uh, asylum seekers. Now, I can see the logic of that, but it was really interesting in my mind when I would make that connection, it was between Hitler's treatment of the Jews and our abortion policies. I thought that was a much more dramatic and direct one. I never actually brought that up. It was a, The point was not to have a debate about all that. It was just to listen to one another. But I do think, if I can just speak frankly, I do think that's the, that's the issue of our time that we will look back at 50 or 100 or maybe 500 years from now and say, how could we permit such blatant loss of life of in, infants like that? So if you would like to read more of Mark's musings about this, I think they're to come in future yeah, articles. Yeah, but they won't be about that. So. <laughs> they won't be a harangue about that. Okay. They will be basically on how do we understand Jewish and Christian relations in light of the Holocaust. And I do think it requires us to rethink how we relate to one another, how we understand one another, and how we go about talking about Jesus to, to our, our Jew, Jewish friends. So again, I encourage you to support our ministry. That is morect.com slash quick to listen. morect.com slash quick to listen. Now is the time of the show we call Precious Moments. Everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy in the past week. Mark, you can go again first. It would be remiss of me not to mention something from the 
Poland trip, but it will it would be pretty prosaic and yet wonderful at the same time. During those periods when I was feeling actually well <laughs> in the last oh, few days. Oh, you were sick for most of the trip. Well, for the last four days, yeah. Yikes. On and off. But then I have these periods where I'd feel really good. And then I would go down to the main square in Krakow and I would sit down at a restaurant overlooking, an outdoor restaurant overlooking the main square and all the people in the activity. And I'd have a beer and some something Polish to eat and pick up my Kindle and read read a book. And it was just delightful. City squares are the best. Yeah, they are. They're also and good Krakow for people watching. is a beautiful city. Poland is an amazing country. I'm afraid it, I had some negative impressions of Poland for some reason. I don't, I've been trying to think of where they've been coming from, but I just have been so impressed with the country the two times I've been there. Again, if you want more Mark, you also get to subscribe to his newsletter. Which is the Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I Report, which you could get by going to ChristianityToday.com slash the Galley Report, in which I link to articles, make comments, cause trouble, all those sorts of things. And then you can email Mark back telling him how much you disagree with him. He exactly. will appreciate it. I actually do try. I don't, I don't, I'm not always successful, but I do try to respond to every single email that's addressed to the Galley Report. All right, Daniel, you want to go? Thinking through the things I've read the last week, one of the more interesting ones and and ones I got to share around the office was a New Yorker article by Cal Newport, who's a professor at Georgetown. And the article is called, Was Email a Mistake? (laughs) Well, that's a a short essay. Yes. (laughs) So it's really interesting because he starts with just a little story about the CIA headquarters back in the 70s. And they installed something like 30 miles of vacuum piping so that they could immediately send messages to each other all around the headquarters. And this was sort of the way people contacted each other on a short-term basis before email. And his argument was about how email is basically an asynchronous type of communication. I can send something whenever I need to, and then you read it whenever you need to, and you get back to me. But that because of our modern work habits, we treat email now like a synchronous way of communication. We're always checking our email. We feel offended if someone's not emailing us right away back. And so Cal just sort of goes into some of the interesting ways he thinks about that. He's a computer scientist by training. And so he talks about the ways that computer scientists uh, sort of decided how how computers would communicate to each other and how horrible asynchronous communication was for, for computers. Because if one computer in a network sort of just stopped responding, The rest of the computers didn't know what to do. Was the computer just taking a while or was it broken? And he sort of compares that to email and how email might go. If there's one bad apple in the office, everyone might start falling apart uh, on email. It was a fun read. He has a little fun with it. But it was also interesting just to think critically, I guess, about I think most of us who work in the in a lot of different areas of the economy, we spend most of our day doing email or or at least looking at a screen. And so it's just interesting to think about the the sort of small uh, horror that accompany that type of work. Yeah, I will say, I do remember first starting at Christianity Today 30 years ago, we would read our mail first thing in the morning often, and that might take an hour or so, and then we might take another half an hour to an hour responding. But that was it for email. That was it for mail. The rest of the day was spent reading, researching, phoning, making phone calls to research reports. But now I think you're right. I'd say 80% of my day is spent reading email or responding to email. Thank you for enticing us with that article that I'm sure Mark and I will both read and enjoy. Daniel, what can you share your website or where people can find you outside of this? Sure. I have a personal uh, website, danielghummel.com. My book that came out a couple months ago on the history of 
Jewish evangelical relations and, and Israel. It's called Covenant Brothers, Evangelicals, Jews, and U.S.-Israeli Relations, and that's available at Amazon or other booksellers. And I'd also encourage people to just check out upperhouse.org. That's where I work. If you're at all in the Madison area or, or sort of southwest uh, Wisconsin, we do a lot of programming throughout the year, and we also post a lot of our videos uh, on our website. Great. Okay. My precious moment, I suppose I'm supposed to also follow up with Mark's very inglorious proclamation that I was struck by a car (laughs) over the weekend. Yes, I was hit by a car. Obviously, I am extremely grateful to be sitting here talking to people walking around. Those are all really awesome things. I don't think I really took them for granted before. I, In fact, when people would say, like, what are you grateful for? I'd be like, my feet. I'm always grateful for my feet. I'm also grateful for my mind. Obviously, I'll take them even less for granted now. I will say one related precious moment. So I just have had so many like bike, small bike issues happening. Last week, I was biking and my chain broke <laughs> while I was biking, which was so annoying. But this guy from church ended up lending me his single speed bike and it was so nice. He like picked it up on Sunday and it was so sad. I was like, could you have just forgotten about this? Like, do you really need this? I would never have thought a single speed bike would be that nice. And it actually was. I mean, this is Chicago we're talking about. So it's like pretty flat. But that bike like really moved. It had awesome bike lights. It had some stuff that like I don't have on my bike. And I was very jealous of having to give that back to him. But yes, obviously, I am glad. I'm also very thankful for everyone who has provided me with food this week. I'm someone that like feels very loved by people who feed me. And everyone looking out for me during this time. All right. You can find me on Twitter, where I also shared a little bit about this accident at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself and Matt Linder. The music is by Sweeps. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. There's many more. If you need other suggestions for podcast apps, you can ask me about them. Otherwise, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. And if you want to support our ministry, that is morect.com slash quick to listen. We will see you all next week. Bye. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.